0: Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present.
1: And we'd also like to pay our respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past and present.
0: Let's go!
2: Hello, and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National Universities College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you still from our bedrooms. I'm your familiar stranger today, Sean Heath, together with my familiar strangers, Alex. Hello. Ruhelman.
0: Hi, what's up?
2: And Lachlan. Hey. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. Lockie, you're our newest familiar stranger. And we'd like to know a little bit more about some of the really interesting work you're doing uh, in Mexico City.
3: Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. I research in Mexico City. I research an earthquake that happened on September 19, 2017. I work with civil response networks and victim advocacy groups that have formed and fallen apart over the last few years. Um, And I focus on how they and the state manage the fallout of this um, particular earthquake. But I'm particularly interested in the nature of coincidence because this earthquake happened on the anniversary of the biggest earthquake in Mexico City's history, which happened on September 19, 1985. It's the earthquake that democratized Mexico. September 19 became a date to commemorate Uh, Mexican democracy, the formation of a state that was more responsive to its people, and then an earthquake happened on that same day. And so one of the the things that was a part of these commemorations of September 19 was a commemorative evacuation. So at a certain point every day, the early warning system would sound and people would stage an evacuation that was kind of promising that the past earthquake wouldn't happen again by orienting itself toward its future. But then in September 19, 2017, two hours after this commemorative evacuation, another earthquake happened. And so a lot of people had very strange experiences of time being kind of fractured, of living in a deeper sense of time, because it was so unlikely that it seemed like a window into like a deeper sense of temporality than what humans experience typically. Uh, And so that's one of the things I I research, like the the ongoing emotional effects of having lived through an event just uh, exceedingly unlikely.
2: Wow, Lockie, that's really fascinating. The connections you make between the political, the coincidental, uh, and the temporal all rolled up into one, I guess, sort of almost recurring event.
0: I'm quite interested in how people interpret these two earthquake that happened on the same date.
2: Yeah, it's like
3: most people just think of it as a very strange thing, but they also think it is a distinctly Mexican experience. Like uh, Mexican folks like to think think about themselves as having kind of like unparalleled bad luck. And so it seems at both otherworldly strange and just like distinctly Mexican. So that, that's one thing. There's a way in which like national character can absorb an event so unlikely as this. But one thing that I think that's important for my research is the emergence of generations. So there's the generation of people who had lived through the 1985 earthquake and the people that who who hadn't and so I know of some people that you know they're in there they were in their like the 40s or 50s when the the 2017 earthquake happened and so the earthquake happened you know they didn't really realize it was an earthquake then you know their building got shook and they ran out and they ran to check on their apartment that they lived in but they ran back to the place they lived in in 1985 like they were bumped back in time whereas people who didn't live through the 1985 earthquake they had no kind of original point for those memories they just had like the the memory of commemorating each year but it didn't lead to like a an originary point of that memory alongside like class and race and gender distinctions like that that's a distinction that that has been really important for my research like the emergence of these you know generation 1985 and generation 2017 and do they
1: talk in those sorts of terms do they say you know
3: La generación or like... That's a distinction I picked up from a sociologist here in Mexico City, like uh, mm-hmm. identifying things in those generations. People will, they make those generational markers, but uh, not necessarily with the titles that, uh, you know, the sociologist I work with and or I give to them.
1: And look, it's probably worth, because, you know, I think a lot of our listeners probably don't know that much about the 2017 earthquake. How severe was it? Like more than just a bit of a shake, I assume.
3: Yeah, it was a dud. Like, it was no good. And it was about 7.1 magnitude, but because it was so close, it was really, really violent. And so, about 400 people died, maybe 350 in, in Mexico City itself, and then the remainder in the states that are surrounding Mexico City. Within like five seconds, I know of 40 buildings that fell, um, that just collapsed entirely within about five seconds of the earthquake, and ultimately about 3300 have been declared uninhabitable. That doesn't mean that people don't inhabit them. Uh, Like a lot of my research is with people that live in buildings that are slowly falling down. Yeah, it it was it was a big one. The nineteen eighty five earthquake was just catastrophic. It was like independent research suggests it was like forty five thousand people died. You know, a quarter of a million people became homeless instantly. Five thousand people were leaving Mexico City for fear uh, every single day after the earthquake. Um, So that was a really bad one. And twenty seventeen was nowhere near that bad. But it was still, it was the second most catastrophic earthquake in Mexico City's history, in Mexico City's modern history.
0: I'm curious about, like, what brought your interest in this topic? Anthropological research methods are always like, you go there, observe them, uh, experience these events, a series of events with them, since, I guess, you went there after the earthquake. So is your your research methods mainly focused on interviewing and also like because this research sounds like very full of suffering people's like suffering memory of the past and how do you manage that part emotionally
3: yeah that's a really good question um like i'll take the first one first um so my partner's from mexico city we met in australia and she was still in australia when the earthquake happened i was in santa cruz california where i do my phd and so, uh, you know, we couldn't find her dad uh, who lives here and we couldn't find him for like 30 hours or so. And that was really terrifying. And so I came shortly thereafter, I, I was coming for a wedding, but then I came and I met some people and I did some things to try to help. Um, and I had a completely different project at the time. After that point, I was just like, oh, th- that's it. I like, I have to kind of change to this one. Like this was, you know, something that was happening immediately, like within, you know, my relationship circle. And like, I felt very firmly compelled to do it. Um, And so that's how I kind of ended up doing it. I was within like maybe about 10 days of the earthquake. It's the first time that I arrived to Mexico City after the earthquake had happened. And so, yeah, a lot of it is just focused on the fallout and so on. But I'm trying not to just kind of talk about suffering memories, memories of suffering and so on. Like I am kind of dealing with that to some extent. But what people people were always telling me that you know the time stopped the time changed and i became really interested in trying to write about this project in a way that kind of like retained how weird it was that this earthquake happened on the the anniversary of another earthquake yeah i tried to, to to kind of write with the idea that time stopped at, um, at 1.14 p.m. on the 19th of September 2017. I try to write that with my as my central fundamental theory. But this is the central thing, and this is a thing I think about a lot. This podcast is called The Familiar Strange. You know, we make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And I feel like anthropology also makes the mundane interesting and the interesting mundane. And I was really keen to write a dissertation that reflected how baffling this was for folks that lived through it, alongside just fulfilling everyone everyone's expectations of how the mexican state wouldn't function you know so a a lot of this kind of banality but also this intense strangeness that this was like literally a coincidence on the geological scale
2: jumping off of that idea of, of the mundane Lockie, i'm really interested in people's everyday experiences of earthquakes in mexico city the type of living with earthquake preparedness that they might or might not do living in an earthquake zone
3: Everyone like a lot of my friends and people I knew know they grew up doing this kind of stuff like uh, every single September nineteen, um, going to to events where technologies were being inaugurated. Most people also grew up with like an earthquake bag um, that has like identification, a torch, a battery, you know, things like that sitting outside their door, and that was a, like a normal part of their lives to have this like little box or a bag. And most folks are really kind of conversant, at least like in a colloquial sense, with like seismological theory. Like they'll talk about. Whether or not this is like an oscillatory more like a, like a, an earthquake that's going side to side, an earthquake that's going up and down, like they have like this sense, of like how these things like affect. People's bodies and so on. And most people that that are kind of part of the younger generation, they, until 2017, they weren't too worried about earthquakes. There were like a couple of big ones, you know, after 1985, but nothing that was like destructive. But after 2017, a lot of folks that I know have had like really traumatic experiences. And so they have, whenever there's another earthquake post 2017, they have flashbacks, they start crying in the street. Even when they hear the earthquake early warning system, uh, people, get overwhelmed with this reminder that the earth is happening to them, perhaps like because they were so prepared earthquakes in the future have begun to hurt them even more or affect them even more because their preparation was part of this national project of saying that this disaster will never happen again. And it happened like literally the same day.
2: That's really fascinating to hear, coming from Vancouver, where I grew up. You know, I, I grew up with earthquake preparedness, having an earthquake kit, and doing these types of drills in school. Right. And I'm not sure if it was on a, a similar day every single day, but you know, going through those drills, hearing the earthquake played over the um, the loudspeakers at schools mm. was was part of my everyday existence. So you know, when moving over to the UK to do my PhD and and not having an earthquake preparedness kit and not carrying that around in my car was Quite disjointing for my own sort of lived experience.
3: Yeah, it's super weird, right? Like you know, like I'd be interested in knowing like how tremors were treated in Vancouver because in in Mexico City now, post twenty seventeen, when there's a tremor, people you know like fall on fall down on the street out of fear. Not everyone, of course, but like they have a really fearful response. Whereas I know in like, I don't know what it's like in Quito, um, Alex, but in in Santiago, when there's a tremor, people kind of go, because people interpret it as like a pressure valve in which like the built up pressure has been released. And so they're going to be safe for a little while. Uh, There's none of that sense of cyclicity, cyclicity in Mexico City. There is an idea that earthquakes happen every 30 years, but for the most part, people are just expecting the city to just fall down um, now. And so... Yeah, it's this, like, ongoing sense uh, of terror uh, and that it comes from, like, the fact that, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me that they thought that earthquakes only happen 364 days of a year. Like, they never, in like, in like, intellectually thought that, but that was part of their bodily orientation towards seismicity. And so the sense that that one day a year could have been a day that an earthquake could always have happened, that's, like, the window through which they feel the intrusion of something that's much beyond what you would typically experience as a human.
1: Well, I'll ask the positionality question, like, at the end of the day, is it weird researching earthquakes from the perspective of, you know, somebody who grew up in a really tectonically, like, stable place? Yeah. (laughs) Like, the first time I felt an earthquake, it was absurd. And then you have kind of embraced that? Like, how does that affect your research? Does it affect your research, do you think?
3: yeah like i'd say so yeah because like i'd never experienced an earthquake in my life before moving to california to begin my phd and yeah it was like extremely extremely strange and so and so what i've tried to do in terms of positionality is like i just listen to people tell me the same story over and over again i kind of see myself as being like a i don't know like a son-in-law or something like that of a lot of the people that i work with where i'm like kind of half in half out blah 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 and i have to be super respectful um and so a lot of people want to talk about how weird the earthquake was and they want to go through it over and over and over again. And their family is like, no, no, no. And their friends are like, no, 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 this is boring. Like, stop talking to me about this. And um, I've just like kind of, yeah, like both for my research and kind of resigned myself to just listening to people as they repeat conversations with me. And so those two things kind of come together. The the fact that I have no experience, the fact that I'm not Mexican uh, and the the role like the role that I can play as a, as an ethical researcher with the folks I go with, um, is literally just to kind of sit with them and let them tell me the same story every few months so that they can kind of pr- continue processing what's happening to them. So I'm not, I don't do anything into, I don't think I'll do anything in terms of like a research product, but I've been trying to make sure my research process has been something that's useful for people.
1: And that's the thing, right? Like, Insider ethnography is, you know, more and more in vogue and people returning to the communities from which they're from to do research, and that is an excellent thing. But there are times that that outsider status is kind of useful for both you and the people you're talking to, that it does give you permission to listen and them to tell stories that they otherwise wouldn't get to tell. And I think that is actually sometimes a really worthwhile thing about anthropology that I feel is a little bit out of fashion at the moment, but I think is still worthwhile holding on to.
3: Yeah, I think like there's possibilities for ethical research anywhere, right? And like, this is not like the perfect, like this is a way that I found I can be useful, particularly to folks from Mexico City, who like to, to kind of talk, to tell stories and to sometimes tell the same stories. This is like the the best way I could kind of go about it by really orienting myself toward that relationship as an ongoing thing.
2: Right. To be fair, we could probably continue on for the next few hours talking about uh, Lockie's fascinating research in Mexico City and thinking about different temporalities and creating our own temporality of a a few-hour podcast. Uh, But I think it's time to move on. So what's interesting and and happening in the news recently, Alex? Uh, What have you been thinking about uh, anthropologically or, or otherwise that's sort of current and present?
1: What I've been thinking about more lately
2: is this sort of, on the one hand,
1: stranglehold, that Russia kind of has over Europe with regard to supply of primarily gas. But also more, more interesting to me personally is the idea of um, energy sovereignty. Because it's an interesting confluence of ideas, right? But of course, inherent in the nature of sovereignty and yet kind of unspoken is an idea of who is sovereign in the sense of what is the group that we're talking about? It's a concept that implicitly draws borders. So there's something really interesting to the concept of sovereignty in and of itself and what it means for how we conceive the societies and the communities we're in. But then energy sovereignty also gives it that real materiality that's sometimes lacking from those discussions, yeah? I'm sure lots of our listeners will know the classic Benedict Anderson, Nations Are Imagined Communities. I quite like the work and it makes a lot of sense but it really treats nation as this real abstract concept. Whereas once you add something like the burning of gas to generate electricity, suddenly that gives sovereignty a real materiality. And I'd be really interested to hear what you guys think about that. First of all, sovereignty, the ideas of what this sort of means for different ideas of community, and then kind of the materiality of it.
0: So I guess in the context of uh, energy sovereignty... At the beginning, when I heard heard you talk about it, I was like, "Mm, sovereignty is about nation states for sure. But then I realized that sovereignty is probably, uh, energy sovereignty is probably about like how a nation state is trying to gain its autonomy on controlling how how the country, the nation states produce energy, where this energy from. And in that case, it's, Hard to say that in the globalized world, like any country, any nation state would be able to totally again sovereign energy sovereignty. I say because it's like so many in transnational capital, so many like state-owned enterprise, like they all get involved in this concepts. Uh, I was talking with a friend actually recently about this. Uh, energy autonomy. He mentioned he's from uh Europe, and he mentioned in his country, in the Netherlands, actually, there are like people who's like trying to produce energy for off grade, and then by law that's the states order those energy producing company to rebuy this energy produced from the people who produce the off grade with. Which is very intriguing. And how do you think that is connected to energy sovereignty?
1: Somewhere out there, there is a political scientist that loves that because that really speaks to old school political science ideas of sovereignty, right? It's the monopoly over the use of force in this case. Like, that is the state saying, if it's not the use of force, it's the monopoly over the use of energy. You don't get to like generate your own electricity. Even if you can, we need to be in control of it, which is Wild. I've never heard of that. I've heard about towns trying to, like, get off the grid and all individuals getting off the grid, or little communities getting off the grid, but I've never known enough about it to hear that the state goes, now stuffia, we need to connect the grid to you so that, like, you join the rest of us in the system. That is fascinating.
2: Being in the Netherlands myself at this moment, um, it's really interesting to see the uses of solar power and having these individuals, these, you know, air quotes, sovereign houses, households, Being connected and having that additional energy being fed into the national grid and then being supplied out later, they just say, well, you can have this energy at a later date. You know, we'll sort of hold it in trust for you regardless of of the cost, which I think is kind of sort of an interesting way to think about, you know, sovereignty of one's household um, connecting it to the nation or the community as a whole, because you can be sovereign and self-sustainable, I guess, in your energy needs by producing, you know, enough to run, um, you know, your heating, your electricity. Uh, but you can also help your neighbor potentially by producing more than you need, which then generates, you know, the, I guess, energy quote unquote sovereignty of the nation of the whole.
3: Like, comparing it to Mexico, which right now is embarking on some constitutional reforms to re-nationalize a whole bunch of energy resources that were privatized in, like, 2013 by a previous president, Um the the debate is distinctly material, right? Um, and it's built around a conception of sovereignty that I think is different to what's used in anthropology a, a lot. Not just because of its materiality, but because sovereignty requires recognition. To be recognized as a nation state is what produces the sovereignty, alongside like the you know the sovereign's use of force and so on. Like a nation needs can't just like declare itself; it has to be recognized by other nations to be considered a sovereign nation, right? Whereas uh, energy, as Ronan was saying, like, is more around, like, autonomy, right? Like, the, you know, the actual capacity to have the stuff and use it toward your own ends and so on. And so in the Netherlands, you're talking about, like, you know, Citizens and so on producing that energy themselves and then selling it back or, you know, giving it back to the state. But the, the promise of redistribution in the future, like this seems to be a moment where the state can declare itself sovereign, not over a piece of territory, but over the future itself, right? The promise that the energy will be returned to you eventually, right? So it's like that, that seems to be a moment of like working out how to use. Energy sources that are not in the ground or in their material, in a, like a distinct materiality, like we might normally think about it, um, while still finding a way to articulate a state form of sovereignty that's recognizable to us as just like the the normal kind of form. You know what I mean?
0: If the states try using its sovereignty to promise that these citizens could use those energy they provides now in the future. As a way to show their to exhibit their sovereignty to its subjects, then how much can this word be trusted for the future? Because I had the the experience before when I I donate blood and people and the governments or the rules or the laws say that you could use the blood in the future when you're in need, when you're in need, and then when you, It comes to the time that you are in you in need of this blood, this amount of blood, what you previous donate doesn't count or it has a series of very complicated hierarchical procedure, bureaucratic procedure to to use it. And that's led me to this like uh, I don't trust these words. This happens
3: in Mexico, too. Like if a person's in hospital in Mexico and they need blood, they need their family members to go and drop off blood. And so I've gone for my friends who have got like sick parents. Yeah. And we go in, like four or five of us, we donate a whole bunch of blood. And then the blood, not our blood, but like somebody else's blood will be given to the, to the patient. Um, yeah. It's like this very <laughs> graphic. <economy>. Medical
0: anthropology.
2: <laughs>
0: this is the economy of organs, of yeah. body parts. Incentives to encourage people to really donate blood because blood in different culture have so much taboos and related to people's spirits or people's tea or people's energy and things. People are reluctant to donate blood.
2: Well, from a very material perspective, to take something like solar or wind energy, which seems very immaterial and sort of mesophysical, um, to... Look at the energy and the sovereign energy of one's own blood, the oxygen that, that powers our bodies in our blood. You know, it gets really complicated when you introduce a mid layer of politics, of global capitalism, and the sources and uses um, to develop one's own sovereignty, whether it's a regular supply of blood uh, and blood donation for humanitarian purposes within one's own country. Uh, let alone for, say, Doctors Without Borders and to other nations. But
1: to sort of bring it back to the broader idea of the internationalism and all that sort of stuff, this kind of, <laughs> weirdly, that whole idea that you need to, like, bang the drum and get your friends to donate so you can claim, actually, again, starts to create really interesting, I like, Clear boundaries around, I don't know, community, kin and family, right? Like asking somebody to donate blood on your behalf is a big freaking deal. I would argue, and I admit I perhaps don't know sufficient about the political situation to say this with confidence, but something curiously potentially similar about the EU, right, where you have some nations that are absolute mass consumers of gas and hydrocarbons And yet I was reading about how Spain, for instance, they're a net exporter, apparently nowhere near the size of Russia, but nevertheless, they net export gas. And yet they are instituting a number of restrictions, not as extreme as the rest of Europe. So there's this really interesting little dynamic of like, we're going to do things a little tough, not as tough as perhaps some of you, but we'll do them a little tough so that they can theoretically, I'll put donate in air quotes because it's going to be sell. But have that gas available for the rest of Europe, which again, starts to create a potential material idea of community, of making the European Union, which has already, you know, for decades now started to have more and more material expressions. But this idea of we're going to try to consume a little less energy so we can at least sell energy to the rest of Europe to try and get it sovereign from this other energy Now, Spain cannot provide anywhere near the level that is necessary, but nevertheless, that relative, like, sacrificing, using less energy to sell energy provides an interesting set of dynamics that, again, potentially embody a sense of Europe. And throughout this whole crisis, people have talked about how there has been more of a sense of Europe as a construct than there had been for decades for a lot of people because the borders are being drawn and because they're actually starting to have to make some kind of Europe wide sacrifices in ways that they hadn't for decades,
3: potentially
1: we'll see what the future holds. It's been six months.
3: Yeah. I think it's an interesting dynamic, but it's also built like we could say that Europe is producing its own idea of Europe through its energy sovereignty, but I also, I think that Spain imports a lot of gas from Peru. And then I definitely know that Spain sells Peruvian gas to Mexico, despite Mexico having its own gas. And this is because it was privatized and sold to a Spanish corporation. Um, and so the capacity for Spain to produce its Spanishness is contingent on Spanish's, Spain's colonial positioning in the Americas. Uh, what I'm hearing along these conversations, like, you know, energy, solar energy and blood, Um, is an argument that I think Timothy Mitchell has made in Carbon Democracy, and then I'm thinking of people like On Barak, like historians like On Barak, who have written that different forms of energy produce different forms of governance. And so you can trace like the the transition from a coal form of governance to an oil form of governance. And we're talking about solar forms of governance and blood forms of governance and so on, which are going to be like similar to historical state formations and and international globalized uh, uh, formations of of political economies and so on. But they're going to take, you know, their own unique kind of weird forms. Right. And I think this is something we're seeing now. Like I know, at least one of the ways to understand energy reform in Mexico <clears throat> is this is this kind of shifting forms of governance based around shifting forms of energy, because the Mexican president is trying to build a whole bunch of like oil refineries, because right now Mexico has a lot of oil, sells it to the United States to be refined and then buys it back at an inflated rate. And so he's like, "No, to hell with this. This is stupid. Um, like, let's make a refinery. Let's be sovereign kind of thing. And a lot of people are kind of pushing back against them being like, well, if you're going to build anything, why don't you build a whole bunch of solar energy plant uh, farms? Why don't you go build a whole bunch of wind energy farms in the south? And these Spanish owned energy corporations, they might have a couple of wind farms down in Tehuantepec and like, you know, in the south. They do have a couple, but the idea that the corporation will respond more promptly to the demands for green energy than than a state would makes people makes a lot of like semi-left or you know central liberal kind of people in Mexico really want more corporate ownership of the state's res- of the the nation's resources rather than state ownership, you know. And so there's this tension. People are trying to resolve. Um, different forms of governance based around unique or like new forms of energy.
2: Well, that's all we have time for today at The Familiar Strange. I would like to thank Ruonan. Thank you. Alex. Thanks. And our latest Familiar Stranger, Lockie.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: And me, your host, Sean. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check us out at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not the Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Ferrelli, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maude Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.